I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word tonight, we ask that you would release us from any bondage, any hindrance, anything that would block the coming in of your word into our hearts, anything that would keep its light from shining to us and within us. We ask you to give us liberty and freedom here tonight, not only to speak, but to listen and to learn and to hear, that you would make it clear and simple to us. And we thank you for this privilege that we have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I personally title it Life on God's Terms. That's the way we're supposed to live, the way God shows us to live. And there's no better section of Scripture Old or New Testament that defines how God wants his people to live more so than what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I guess all of you read those three chapters, at least one of those chapters this week is your homework. I'm sure you have. And so the more you keep doing it, the more you'll see things, a word, a phrase, an idea will keep jumping off the page every week. Every time you read it, and you read it slow enough that you pronounce the words and all of that, you'll begin to learn things. God will begin to show you things. These are important things, obviously, because the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed, blessed. They're words which mean to be happy or to have the approval of. And what they identify is the kind of character that God's people will have who live in his kingdom. Now, we would like to think a lot of people would, at least some commentators think that when it says blessed are, blessed, 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 that there are lofty ideals that a Christian should read this and say this is the ideal kind of life that we ought to live or aspire to, and yet not necessarily have to do this. It's not necessarily a mandate. It's not really a commandment. It's just an idea that God puts before us mortals and said, this is the way a man ought to live. He ought to act like this and ought to conduct his affairs like this. He ought to be like this with other people in the world, towards the world, about the world, the light shining and so forth. But the only thing wrong with saying that that's just an idea is that God with these beatitudes ends each one with certain kind of blessing. For example, in verse 3, the one we've looked at before, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's not an idea. That's a reality. I mean, you can't say, well, we ought to be poor in spirit, but you know, if we're not, it's just not everybody can be. And yet, on the other hand, the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom will be. I mean, that's what your Bible says. That's what my Bible says. And I'm not trying to make anything hard. I'm trying to do what should have been done centuries ago with us and our ancestors is tell us the truth. Just make it clear. Say what it says. Jesus said you shall know this truth, and the truth will what? Make us free. So I don't want to be bound with uncertainty and indecisiveness and whatever. I don't want to, well, you know, I know it says that, but I want to know what it says, and I want to be confronted with it. I want God to speak plainly to all of us so that we know that there's no other options here. This is what he wants from us. These are the kind of people that will be in his kingdom. 
We've only done two of them so far, but the first five are all referring to the kind of person that we seldom see or seldom know. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are the poor, because it would be easy to get rid of everything you have and go to heaven. But he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who see their spiritual need, who don't have enough that they can take it or leave it. I, you know, I've heard that 20 years. They have this need spiritually. They realize that they need more than what you have all the time. When God says things, I need to hear it. It was so important that in referring to Isaiah 62, he said, But to this man will I look. To this man, as God sees humanity, but unto this man, he says, will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. That's a humbled spirit, especially before God. And the second of the Beatitudes, very much like it, blessed are they that mourn. We looked at that last week. It's not those who go around with a long face, but those who are aware of their weaknesses and their failings and the failings around them and the condition of people that are not trying, that they don't care. And when God gives you a revelation, when he illumines your mind and your heart and you begin to see what he wants from us, and you're very diligently trying to do that or you're getting into this, and you look at so many people who it's a take-it-or-leave-it affair. It's just religion. It's just churchiness. And you realize that it won't work like that. That's not what this is all about. But so many people are like that. They're literally walking away from eternal life as God is offering it. And it grieves you. You really get bothered by it. There's a reason that prophets cried out because of the sins of the nation of Israel who wept over the fact that this country is going into decline. Here comes another conqueror, the Assyrians on Israel. Here comes Nebuchadnezzar to haul away Judah. And why? Because of sin. And there were those prophets who wept over the place. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Lonely nights on Galilean hillsides. It said he cried out. There was something about his nature and the way he was that is portrayed in the Bible as the way we ought to be. As he is, so are we. And he is an example for us to follow in his steps. Then blessed are the meek tonight. Well, there's not much difference between meek and the first two that you see. Meek is a characteristic, has its own special uniqueness, but it's very much akin to being poor in spirit and those who mourn. It is a human being like many of us once were, loud mouth in your face and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, nobody's going to tell me. Well, I'll tell you one thing. And God brings people like us to him. A corrupt attitude. Everything about us was corrupt. Unless you think you were an angel when God saved you. God brought disasters to him. I'm one of them. You're one of them. He brought us into his kingdom knowing what he was getting Knowing how vile we were and all the sins that we ever committed, there is nothing about us that he didn't know when he chose us. And these are the kind of people that God is going to redo. These are the ones that are going to go from in your face to a bowed head. And he's talking about us, me and you. I know I'm with you because some of those days in which you fail here, those days you opened your mouth and you let somebody have it or... Like yesterday for me, you know, 
you're stopping at the traffic light, the light is green, and you wait until it turns red, and then you can't go for another five minutes. I'm overdoing that. And I'm, come on! Now, I know you wouldn't do that, but I did that. And I think, now here I am teaching on something that you're not supposed to do that. So see, I do that, and I know you wouldn't, but I do that, and I think, when are you ever going to learn? This is not the kind of person God has in his kingdom. You don't do that. Now, I'm not lost because I did that. God knows how frail I am, and he's long-suffering to me. He puts up with far more in me than I probably would. See, he that began a good work is going to finish it. And that good work includes the total redoing of our lives and our minds. There's a reason our minds have to be renewed. There's a reason that we have to be renewed, as Paul said, in the spirit of your mind. It's a reason Isaiah said in chapter 55, he said, you know, your ways are not my ways. You know why? Because your thoughts are not my thoughts. We're not even on the same page. How can we be yoked together and walk together when you live like that and I tell you to live like this and you're not even trying to live like this? How can we relate? You know, in Matthew 7, he says, you know, I never knew you. Remember that? So he's calling people like us, very ordinary people. And if you're not ordinary, I sure was. But he calls very ordinary, common people like us to himself knowing what he's getting, to do a total redo of our lives. And every time we mess up a lot, it seems like God amplifies that just to show us how much work needs to be done. And after 15 years of this, nothing's been done here. And yet God doesn't forsake us and throw us out. He keeps dealing with us. You've got to love that. You've got to love that, that God is long-suffering toward us. But remember that these Beatitudes as they describe to us what we're supposed to be like. Poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, peacemakers and so forth. This is what we're going to be like. Our lives are going to totally change. They are slowly now. From glory to glory to glory. We're going to grow up into him in all things to the measure, the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. He set it for us. It's tedious, it's difficult, we struggle, we cry out, we mess up, but we pray because we earnestly want it, setting ourselves to seeking the kingdom. And like Jesus said in chapter 6, you seek first the kingdom of God and everything will start falling in place for you. But these beatitudes are really important because this is what we must be like. Those that mourn in verse 4. How can we ever be comforted unless there is this concern and grief over not only our own weaknesses and failings, like yelling at a traffic light? It ought to bother us. Do you think sin should bother us? Do you think your mistakes ought to bother you? Well, of course they should. It ought to trouble us that after, what, 20, 30 years of being a Christian, I still do that? I still watch that, go there, or maybe wear that. Has anything in the Bible influenced or affected me at all? Or do I just dismiss myself from the need to do that because nobody's perfect in order that I may continue my own way? See, as we examine our hearts, remember that in Hebrews 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. 
Because it's easy to say you are, but examination is necessary. So go to verse 5 tonight because I want to talk tonight about the meek. Again, they're very similar to the first three, but it shows the attitude of God's people who are in his kingdom. I can't speak for anybody else here. I can only speak for myself. I had a bad one. I think it might be true. There's a lot more work to be done in some of us than in others. Would you agree to that, that some people were more messed up than others were when God saved them? I'm one of those that to whom much is forgiven, <laughs> much love comes from it. I mean, I know where I came from. And I realize now that all the fun I thought I was having in those other days are now difficulties for me now. Because I can't do that anymore. I can't think like that anymore. I can't get into that stuff anymore. There's a transformation taking place. You remember that in Romans 12? He said, be not conformed to this world. That's a word for schematic. You know, here's what we're building. No longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. This is not a 100-yard dash we're living. It's a marathon. Be transformed, metamorphosis, change into another form by the renewing of your mind. And we're working at it. Some work at it more so than others. Some of us want it more than others. Some don't see their great need for it yet. We've all been there. But the closer we get, God's people are really going to see it. And you're going to really have a heart to really dig in and bear down and get your heart ready and your life ready for the Lord. The purpose of ministry among other things, is Luke one seventeen, what John the Baptist did, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so it's necessary in teaching to point out these things like in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, he said in verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this quote was taken from Psalm 37.11, Jesus quotes the Psalm 37.11, which says, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. That's what it says in Psalm 37. Now, the Hebrew and the Greek and the English word for meek is not easily defined because there's so many different ways you can describe what meek is or what meek means. But a meek person is not a brawler, not a fighter, doesn't use bad language, doesn't throw temper, doesn't have fits, doesn't come back at you, doesn't threaten you, doesn't intimidate you, is not a person who is easily upset and throws a fit. Maybe they used to, but meekness comes in as a trait that changes all of that. Meekness will turn the other cheek. Meekness will go the second mile. Meekness will, if you ask, you shall receive. A meek person is one whose trust is in the Lord to take care of them and to provide and so forth. And a meek person is just really a harmless person in this world, not the kind of person the world would ever want to be like. We live in a world of heroes and corruption and violence. I mean, you see it in video games. You see it in the popular movies today and the characters that are bad and tough and hurt people or maim and kill people. They're heroes and they're tough. They're the opposite or the antithesis of meekness. They're the kind of people with bowed heads. 
it would be like putting a soldier next to an Amishman. You know, I think of the Amish, I think more of the kind of traits that the Lord is talking about are, you know, the Amish, the Mennonites and those folks, because they keep them themselves. They're quiet and they're gentle. Who teaches their children today to be gentle, to be gentlemen, to be kind, to have a soft answer? When's the last time you heard of somebody teaching their child that a soft answer, Proverbs 15, will turn away wrath? You're supposed to fight back. You're supposed to not let anybody push you around. If they do that to you, you take this and you stick it in his nose. Let him have one. You know, you can't do that no more. Maybe that's the way you grew up. We all grew up some way, some like that. But then you realize that that's not who the kingdom is being prepared for. Remember Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and receive people in that kingdom who are like what I'm going to describe here. The work he's doing in us, I pray, is making us the kind of people he wants us to be, especially with this trait of being meek. I want you to turn to several passages of Scripture because it's easier for me to define meek by looking at the way it's used than to try to give 50 words that are traits of the meek. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. Let's start there. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. Here he's talking to wives of unsaved husbands, how an unsaved man can be brought to the Lord, not by the preaching of the wife or the insistence of him changing his ways, but as he beholds her godly life, her wonderful behavior. Verse 3, it talks about her adorning and how she fixes herself up. But he said, verse 4, this is what God wants. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Notice, which in the sight of God is of great price, not only in women, but in men. The gender has nothing to do with it. It happens to be applied here to women, but it's true with all of us. If we gave a test tonight, if this was a class and I was teaching, and I said, what does the Lord point out to say that has great price, great value with him? Which in the sight of God is of great Price. What would it be? A meek and quiet spirit. Would that be right? So there is a value that the Scripture attaches to it as God gave it, because all Scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as God penned this word to us, this is one of those things that he specifically spells out as something that in the eyes of God is, has a great price, and it's a meek and quiet spirit. It's not an in-your-face, loud-mouth, insulting, easily ticked-off, moody person. That has nothing to do with being meek. That's what the world makes out of us. That's what the world does to people. The people that are tense all the time and stressed all the time that really don't know how to trust God. They're not sure about anything. And so the opposite of meekness pops out all the time because you get irritable. And you get mad easy and you take things wrong. You got a chip on your shoulder. You're hard to get along with. That's nothing to do with meek. Those are not traits that are going to be in God's kingdom. We're not going to come into God's kingdom and God say, Oh, by, don't say nothing to him because he might fly off the handle up here in heaven. It won't be there. The kind of people that are going to dwell in God's kingdom and inherit what he's got are defined 
in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 15 of 1 Peter 3. But he says here, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. And let them have it. Notice he even describes how we tell people about what God has done for us and how grateful we are. We do it in a spirit of meekness. You go back to the first two Beatitudes. We have no boast. Any of us that have been brought out of darkness into marvelous light, what do we boast of? How did we get here? God brought us here. Then what do we boast of? We can't boast. No man can save himself. There's not a soul that ever lived that can save himself. You're not going to wait till you're 90 years old one day and just get saved. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you and ordained you. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From above. We can manufacture nothing acceptable to God because all we like sheep had gone astray. There was none right. Not one who was righteous. Not a single one. If there was none right and all of us were dead in trespasses and sins, then what good can any of us do apart from God? Nothing. So when good happens, like being here tonight and being blessed, praise the Lord. You have to, don't you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So when a man asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, why would he ask you that? Because you walk around with a long face. I'm just a poor, oh, sad and sorry saint. No, you're all of that <laughs> the way you were. But God does something in your life. Remember that song that we sing, something in my heart like a stream running free, for out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of them. Makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be, when I think of Jesus and what he's done for me. Something in my heart like a stream running free. You're smiling. Why are you smiling? Because you got by with something? No. There's within my heart a real dark place. No, there's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Thou hast turned my mourning into dancing for me. Thou hast put off my sackcloth. Even in Psalm 61 that we've been using on Wednesday night, he says it to appoint to them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Well, these are things that characterize us. Amen? I mean, we're not those people standing around like this, waiting to be insulted. All of that goes to the cross. All of that dies because none of it is of God. It all came out of the world and corrupted us and polluted us and spotted us and stained us. Everything is becoming new now. There's these new things. Boy, it's hard to do this because the devil doesn't let go, but you work at it. You put a smile on your face. Something happens, and instead of going, oh, no, you just go, praise the Lord. 
We praise the Lord for it. Well, I've got the victory. God knows what to do in this situation. I don't. I'm trusting the Lord. So praise the Lord. You're always smiling. Everybody's sitting around cussing, talking about politics, and they ought to shoot this one and shoot that one, hang this one, get rid of that one, throw this one over the hill, run over that one. And you're sitting around and you could care less. As far as the subject matter, that's not mine. What are you going to do? I said, you know what? I don't know. I'll trust the Lord. When all of that comes up, I'll trust the Lord. All I can say is that so far this time in my life, I've been a Christian for 40 years, almost 42. Wow. That's older than most of you are. But I can look back at my Ebenezer Stones in 42 years of living, and you know what? He's never failed. Every turn of my life, every desperate moment when the... The light bulb shined all night in a difficult situation at home. God has never failed. So I look at tomorrow and people say, what are we going to do tomorrow? I think, I don't know. I don't say this, but I don't know. But my God is already in my tomorrows. He's already there taking care of things and told me in the Sermon on the Mount to take no thought for tomorrow. So I cast all my care over on him. I refuse to worry about it. And I do this because this is what he wants. This is the way his people react to things in life with regard to what God has said. And so I just do that. And I do it so folks say, what is it about you? And it gives you a chance to witness. How? With meekness. What did he say about a brother who was overtaken in a fall? You don't have to turn to this. Remember Galatians 6, 1, it says, If you see a brother overtaken in a fall, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one, I'll just add, in a spirit of meekness, considering your own self also. You're not exactly perfect, and you're not beyond failing or flaws yourself. So you, when you tell your story or when you correct somebody or talk to somebody or try to help somebody, remember, don't talk down at anybody face-to-face because nobody here has arrived at any place good that God didn't bring us to. So when you share about your life, you make sure that Jesus gets all the glory when you tell about it. That your life is all about Jesus. Because that's what he wants. And while you're at it, turn to that other wonderful place, Matthew 11. The one we're all familiar with that defines meekness. Verse 28. Come unto me, all you that labor. And are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now, we all were. Every one of us were. I hope you're not tonight, or if you are still laboring in this world and fretting and stressing over this world, I hope God breaks through some tonight and knocks some of that scale off your eyes and you begin to see you don't have to be. He said, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. And then he said in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and what? Does your Bible say learn? You know who's going to learn? Those that hunger and thirst for it. Like the deer that panteth for the water brooks. As the psalmist said, so my soul thirsteth for thee. That's who's going to learn. A person who wants to learn about the Lord, you're not going to keep them away from a time to learn. They don't dread going to a meeting place and say, oh, do I have to go? I had that on. I don't want. They don't say that. 
There's something in your newborn spirit prompted by God's spirit that loves and enjoys his word. Something in a newborn spirit where the Lord is that delights in the word of God. And because they taste and see that that this is good. Man, this is good. And there's a meeting or it's a called assembly. They're going to be there. You know why? Because your heart wants it. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Remember that song? Once a week I need thee. Every hour. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn me. What is a yoke? I'm not talking about eggs now. I'm talking about a yoke. A yoke, that wooden thing they put on oxen. It goes over their neck with a loop under here to keep their head from coming out. You realize that Jesus is inviting you to walk with him? He takes you who are nothing and worth nothing. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, has nothing to offer God. You weren't saved because you had anything to offer God. And he takes somebody like you and he says, here, I want you to yoke up with me. I want you to walk with me. We used to sing that song. He walks with me and he talks with me and tells me I'm his own and so forth. I want you to relate to me. As I go, I want you to go with me because I'm going to lead you in the way that I've chose you to go. And I want you to know me. You can't do that unless you have a relationship with the Lord. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Don't dread it. Don't say, oh, no, do I have to go this way? That's too Don't do that. Don't read this book and say, that's too hard. The world trains you to think like that. Now, you can tell how worldly a person is by how they confront the word. They say, oh, his words are difficult. No, they're not. It's the way we were trained. This mind is what made us difficult. They say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Learn of me. Learning is a process. To learn is to accumulate and gather in facts. And you're given something to think about if you're learning. And when you digress or you dwell on or think about these facts, God takes it. The more you're really interested in it, the more the Holy Spirit begins to form the image of what the word says until you begin to see what God is saying to your eyes of your heart. Remember Ephesians one. I pray that God, the father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the father of glory would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the eyes of your heart would be, well, it says enlightened, but illumined is the right word illumined so that you may know, The Greek word know is the same word see. Thomas said, except I see the prince in his sight, I won't believe it's the same word as know. The eyes of your heart enlightened by a revelation from God and you begin to see what you've never seen before. You took it for granted, ignored it all your life, and one day you see it. And your life now begins to change forever in a new direction. This is the work of God. This is what God does. He draws you to him. 
He feeds you on His Word. He even prompts in your heart. He even triggers that reaction in your heart to long for God and to learn. And you hear things and, and you begin to see it. It's not just a Bible gathering or a study. It's an experience. Now, if you've had that before, you want it again. I can only say this. The first time I had a bite, a piece of German chocolate cake, Mary Dean Dallas made. Y'all don't know Mary Dean. She's in heaven. But years ago, this woman could make German chocolate cake. It was good. Now, you don't get a slice of that and not want another one. Being raised proper, I didn't ask for another one. But once you know she's made another one of those cakes, you find out where it is, and you get over and get your slice of it. <laughs> if we ever had a picnic and she brought one, I got in line. I want Mary Dean's cake. German chocolate cake. Oh, man. A red velvet cake or maybe a good carrot cake. That's carnal, but anyway... <laughs> Once, in my experience, once a person has had his eyes open to see what God is saying, not with the physical eyes, but with the eyes of your heart, and the revelation, the image, the reality is presented to the man on the inside, the inner man. You begin to see what God is saying. There's this, oh, Jesus, you're so ashamed of the way you've resisted God and rejected and been indifferent to spiritual matters. That's why you would mourn. Then you begin to want more. You can't get enough. You're kind of like poverty-stricken in this area. You've got to have more, and you taste and see that the Lord is good, and it just gets better and better. Church gets better and better. You don't drag yourself in here anymore. I will enter His gates with a long, long face. I'll sit in here and endure the iron. Thirteen minutes He usually talks. You don't do that no more. You know what you do? I want it. I'm only going to preach for 20 minutes. No, no, no. I didn't get all dressed up for 20 minutes. <laughs> What's Peter going to do with his people? Peter, lovest thou me? Lord, you know I do. What did he say to Peter? Feed my sheep. He didn't mean go down to... Papa John's and get him extra large pizza or go somewhere and get a sack of burgers. He's talking about feeding. You can't feed it if you don't know it. And if you want to know it, you got to find out. And when you find out, feed. This is what we all need. All of us need this. But this is one of those things that humbles us. We can't just learn when we want to. We can't just get it anywhere. We can't just have it anywhere. It is as God gives it. And if you want it, you've got to go get it. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. I think I like that. I think all of you look better when there is rest in your souls. When your walk with God so changes the way you approach life, just yoking with the Lord and learning of him, you begin to see things his way. This is where faith kicks in. Your faith doesn't make the word true. The word is true whether you believe it or not. But he begins to show it to you, and you know it has to work because he said it. If God said it, that does settle it. 
and your life begins to take on a new kind of meaning. You begin to just count on God to do what he said he would do. You can't make him do it. You count on him to do it because he said that he would. It's a wonderful experience. Go all the way back to the book of James. little book of James chapter 3. James 3.13. Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge? Now we're talking about learning and knowing Jesus. Who is a wise man here tonight in this building who is endued with knowledge among you? Notice this. This is how you do it. Let him show out of a good manner of life his works with meekness of wisdom. Wisdom dictates you don't boast because that's not wise. Amen? It's not wise to strut your stuff. It's not good to portray yourself as more than what you are or try to be like somebody you're not. That's not meek and that's not wise. In fact, apart from meekness, I don't know how you could have wisdom at all. Wisdom is knowing what to do and how to do it. It's God's direction for your life or for your needs in your life. Wisdom. Knowing what to do and knowing how to do it. Let me read something for you from a commentary that I really like. There's a bunch of them, but this one I look to first. I think it's one of the best. By Albert Barnes. In Barnes Notes, he wrote this. He said, meekness produces peace. It is proof of true greatness of soul. It comes from a heart too great to be moved by little insults. It looks upon those who offer them with pity. He that is constantly ruffled, that suffers every little insult or injury to throw him off his guard and to raise a storm of passion within, is at the mercy of every mortal that chooses to disturb him. And that is true. Anybody that can tick you off controls you. Anybody that throws you into a frenzy controls you. Anybody that makes you fear controls you. You're more fearful, moved upon, and controlled by those people than you are by the Lord. And he ended that by saying, He is like the troubled sea that cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Let me show you something. This is not accurate Greek stuff, but turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You all know about that chapter, about love. Let me show you how meekness is like love. And in fact, I think that they are very similar. When it comes to how you relate to God. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. You're nothing without meekness either, because you inherit nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity or love, it profiteth me nothing. Then these traits... Meekness, I mean, charity suffereth long, puts up with a lot and doesn't strike back, is kind. Would a meek person be a kind person? You'd never have to be concerned about them hurting you. They'll never do you wrong. Charity or meekness envieth not. You don't want to be like anybody. You want to be like Jesus. Charity vaunteth not itself. A meek man doesn't do that either. Seeketh not its own. 
not puffed up. Verse 5, does not behave itself unseemly, not looking for attention. Notice me, admire me, or be scared of me, or be intimidated by me. A meek person, like a loving person, doesn't do that. Seeketh not her own. Is not Look here in verse 5, not easily provoked. Love is like that, so is meekness. Thinketh no evil. A meek person would be like that. Rejoices not in iniquity but rejoices in the truth because that's what brought meekness in the first place. Verse 7, beareth all things, believeth all things. I'm sure that means all things that are of God. Hopeth all things, expects things to be as God has said, and endureth all things. Verse 8, love never fails. I think you could contrast meekness and charity almost every verse there. What I'm saying is that 1 Corinthians 13 has often been the zenith chapter of the kind of person who is a loving Christian. It's actually a picture of a Christian period. We should all have these traits. We're not out here to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to, to be the big honcho. We're not trying to make everybody look up to us. We're not trying to be the stuff. You're not behaving yourself in a way to attract attention to yourself. You become meek and quiet and gentle. This is a great price before God. I can't say that I've seen a whole lot of that in my life because so many of the people back years ago when I first started preaching, a lot of people you listened to were tough, intimidating, they tell God what they want. I told God, I said, now God, and I think, I don't know about that. I cannot imagine anybody doing that. There's something about who God is as he manifests himself to you, as Jesus spoke of that he would, that causes that head to fall down, that causes you to worship him. What did John do when he saw Jesus in his glory? He fell on his face. He didn't say, hey, Lord, how you doing? He didn't do that. He kept his mouth shut and he fell on his face. What did the publican do when he realized what he was? The Bible says he smote upon his breast, could not so much as even look up to God. He smote upon his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's something about what God does in people that makes us like that. It begins to be he must increase and we must decrease. And every time we want to promote ourselves, it's like God says, no, I didn't call you for that. I didn't call you to be famous and all that. And if you were famous because I did a miracle through you, you make sure that you're humble with it. You give a testimony about how God healed you or healed your family member. I told you one time years ago, I struggled one night with one of my kids healing, and the Lord healed them, but I didn't do well. After they were healed, I thought, I need to give this testimony, so I gave the testimony. I got down, I told the devil, and I remember telling that story. The Lord smote my spirit and said, you didn't do that at all. And I realized I was trying to make myself out to be in the eyes of the people more than what I hope they didn't know I was. 
And I realize that there is this human flaw. Human nature wants to be somebody, wants to be exalted, wants to be noticed and admired and looked up to, respected highly above men. And yet to the meek, it's just the opposite of that. Ephesians 3, 2 said, you esteem others as better than yourself. You look at other people as being above you. Remember what Paul said? He was the chief of sinners, the least of all saints. I was the worst of the bad. In fact, the day the Lord saved him on that Damascus road, on that very day he was headed north to kill people, to destroy Christians, torment them and kill them and drag them out in the street. That's what Paul did, and God saved a wretch like him. Wow, God is so good, isn't he? God's people must be meek. We can't be arrogant people. We can't be argumentative, debating people. God never called us to square off with each other and debate politics. God forbid it. What have we to do with that anyway? We pray for those that are in authority. We're not here to argue which one of these unregenerates is better than the other one. And yet people, well, you're taking away our activity. No, I'm not. I'm just saying we're going to another kingdom. We're sojourners and pilgrims in this world. What we do here has to do with making disciples who will be ready for the Lord when the Lord comes. That's what we're doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what I want to do. Turn to Galatians 5. Let me show you a little bit more about how we can define meek by reading Scripture. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now, would that characterize somebody in whom the Spirit has had his liberty to transform? Would it? I tell you what you do now. I want you to read this yourself quietly. Verse 22, I want you to say it like this. I am love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. I am meek. I am temperate. It is either true or we want to believe that's going to be true. I am meek. I will harm nobody. I am a threat to nobody. I am gentle. I will never do somebody, anybody, not even a stranger, wrong. I have goodness in me. Wow. Temperance. There's two or three things you could say about that, but just leave it as it is. Temperance. Self-control. So forth. Are you like that? You that are here tonight, are you like that? Is this the way you conduct your affairs and your life through the week? Now, if we say, well, you know, I, I don't, then could it not be that we did what we just did so the Lord can convict us? Not condemn you, but convict you. We're growing. Nobody is yet perfect. Maybe you are, but most of us aren't. But the fruit of the Spirit, that is the work that the Spirit of God is doing, is to make you loving, joyful, peaceful, putting up with a lot without throwing in, gentle, good, 
faithful, meek, temperate. A person who lives like that, there's no law for that person. All this is above the law. This is the kind of people God wanted in the beginning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Here's another picture of what meekness is. There's a whole lot of preaching in here, but I'm just going to highlight this, okay? Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. We've been talking about that. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's quite a goal, isn't it? To consider others above yourself. If we did, we'd quit talking about them. If we did, we'd quit criticizing them. If we did, we'd quit shunning them. If we did. Verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Is that possible? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What are we talking about? Well, let's read it. Who being in the form of God... Thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So should we. There's a lot of theology here. Like in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation talks about the humiliation of Christ, though he was where he was, very God. From the beginning, the pre-incarnate Christ, he left that lofty estate. Remember Paul wrote, well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became that ye through his poverty might be rich. So he left where he was and not only came to this earth, but it describes two things here. One, he became a man. Jesus is called the son of Adam. He was born of a woman, born like us. He was birthed into this world like we were birthed into this world. He had a human mind. He had a human body. He had human feelings. He hungered. He wept. He grieved. Mark 3 mentions anger. Hebrews 3 talks about we have not a high priest that we cannot identify with. But he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. If he had been only God, we couldn't identify with that. But in the days of his flesh, it talks about, he was like us. And not only did he come down from there and take upon himself manhood, but as a man, he became a servant. That is, he didn't make himself of some big reputation. He didn't try to impress the world with who he was. He was so unpopular in the days of his life on this earth that when it came time to crucify him, they had to bribe one of his guys. To, Which one is he? I think that's amazing. The Pharisees and the big wigs didn't know who he was. He didn't do it their way. He didn't start with them. He didn't cater to them. He didn't honor them. He woed them in Matthew 23. They hated him. What about us? 
Isaiah 53 says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. We esteemed him not. In fact, look in Isaiah 53 just momentarily. You paid a lot for your Bible. You've got to use it. Isaiah 53 and verse 7 about Jesus and us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't threaten them. He did say he could call 10,000 angels, but he didn't. He said, I came for one reason, to do my Father's will. And the Father gave me commandment, what to say and what to speak, and that's what I speak. The Father shows me what to do, and that's what I do. When it came time to go to the cross, that wasn't an easy thing to do. For the Bible describes him in the garden, wrestling with what was about to happen in his life. The tension, I would assume, the tension as he prayed, I mean, the stress and the agony that he was in. The Greek words are very graphic. The state of mind in wrestling with our sins and what he had to do to deliver us from it. That sweat mingled with blood fell to the ground. The first time he shed his blood was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told in Hebrews 12, he said, you know, you all give up so easy. You give up so easy. He said, consider him who resisted under the shedding of his blood. He's the example for us to follow. Sin's a big deal. The mission that we have in this earth, the way he's bringing us is a big deal. The work that Jesus had was a big deal. It could only be done as he came to this earth and humbled himself fully and completely to God. In Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He made himself of no reputation. That's the word kino or kenosis experience. He emptied himself. He didn't come down here saying, I know who I am and you all better repent. He just came down here and he preached the gospel. He brought the good news. And he told many of the people that he healed. He said, don't tell anybody this happened. He said in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, he said, he knew what was in men. One time they tried to make him a king. People are like that. But that wasn't what he came for. He wasn't seeking praise the devil said, throw yourself down from this pinnacle here up there in the corner where that dome of the rocket. Throw yourself off that pinnacle down here toward this valley. I looked at that when I was over in Israel and I thought, I wonder if that's where it was right there on top of that wall. Then he tried to quote the Bible to him. People come and say, oh, you're him. The people at the cross said, come off the cross and we'll believe you. Oh, look what a chance we got here to save souls. Well, nobody's going to get saved unless he dies. Isn't that something? No, don't come off that cross. No man should die like that. No man should have that much pain and agony in his life for so many hours. But please don't come off that cross. Die like that. Because what you're doing is dying in my place. But if you don't, I can't. I'm done forever. Now, he humbled himself to the likes of being for us the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. A little innocent lamb. Sweet little thing. And he came along and this is God's offering for man's sin. And Jesus, you do it. And he said, it is finished. Remember that? It is finished. And the veil rent and the earth became dark. 
All of creation knew what had happened. I think it's the story of the Bible. I do. That he emptied himself. He laid aside his rank and his heavenly place. And he put all that aside to assume a very humble role. We call it his humiliation here. He didn't become just like a man. He became a servant of man. He was abused. He was treated wrongly. They finally killed him. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody cared. His family thought he was mad. All of his disciples forsook him. He died anyway. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Now in Hebrews 7, he says, There he ever lives to make intercession for me. He does. I believe that. I'm going to make it. Oh, this transition from this old boogie-woogie life of yesteryear to a life of stillness and humbleness before God, a bowing of the head, the surrender of the will to God. Have thine own way, Lord. Remember that song? Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Meekness says, mold me and make me after your will. If you want me to be a spittoon, do that. I'm glad to be one. If you want me to be a vase in some prominent place in the house, I'd be glad to do that. If you want me to be a little cup that you're going to put coins in, I'd be glad to be that. I have no aspirations of myself. I have no greatness I aspire to. I don't want to be like anybody. I'm not claiming some high-class mansion in heaven. I am claiming I'll be there. But the way we get there, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, it begins with being meek. Now, let me give you a couple more things, and then we'll close about this. In Psalm 25, 9, he says, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Now, he said, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Well, now, let me ask you the simple question. Who then will God teach? Who will he be able to teach? The meek. Those who see their need for it, who with grateful hearts come and get it, who can't even learn it unless he gives this spirit of wisdom and revelation to us. I can only be here and desire and enjoy it. But God has to do the deeper work. Now, having said that about learning, go to James. James chapter 1, you know this verse, verse 21. Wherefore... Lay apart all filthiness with superfluity. That means overflow. Lay apart all filthiness and this overflow of evil, naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Can the preacher save your soul? <laughs> Can mom and dad save your soul? No. God has given one thing to save the soul. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all that believe. So as Christians, knowing that we have our difficulties and our obstacles and obstructions between us and God, he said, look, I recognize some weaknesses and flaws, James says. Lay aside 
give up this continuous naughty lifestyle that you allow to creep in. Quit it. That's a hindrance to you receiving the word. Because you see, it doesn't manufacture or bring forth meekness. But receive with meekness. Lay this other stuff aside and receive with meekness this engrafted word which is able to save you. Save you in all ways and all things. Turn your life around. Completely redo everything about you. And when you get turned around like Ephesians 4.1 says, you begin to walk worthy of the Lord. And he mentions meekness. Because these are the ones that are going to walk the way he wants them to walk in verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, Paul writes. We can't escape the word in the New Testament. You can't escape the word in the Old Testament. You can't escape the idea of the word meekness. And we look at so much that is not meekness, but there's a lot of arrogance and haughtiness. And Look at athletes. Look at how many of them want to be noticed, or worse of all is either movie stars or these rocks, so-called hip-hop singers. I mean, they love camera time, want to get in front of a camera. That's really meekness, isn't it? That's the very thing that corrupts you. I don't know how those people get saved, but I don't know how I did either. Because all of that stuff has to go to the cross, and all that stuff has to die. All of it does. Well, I want to close and say this, that Jesus said that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Did you know that you have an inheritance? There is a time on this earth in which you shall reign and rule with Christ. That's eschatology. That's end time stuff. But there is a time, the Bible says, that if we overcome, if we endure, Timothy said, then we shall reign with him, reign with him. But concerning your inheritance and what is coming, if you're willing to live the way he wants you to live as a reward, it's this last final verse, 1 Peter 1 and verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to his abundant mercy, hath begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation ready to be revealed in the last days who greatly rejoice even though now for a season you be in heaviness through many kinds of temptations knowing this that the trial of your faith, more precious than gold and silver, though it be tested with fire, might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus. That's the message. That's the message. Jesus came that we might have this so that we might have an inheritance, but in the meantime, there's a life you live, and it's not easy. And you have to take it all by faith. You have to believe and trust that what he said he will do. You've got to live like that. And one day it'll all come to pass and he'll come back and he'll call your name. Come up hither. You'll arise to meet him in the air if you're still here. The graves will open if you're down there. You'll meet the Lord in the air and so shall you ever be with the Lord.
It gets better. doesn't get easier. It gets better. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless us. Bless the Word. May it have living substance in our heart. May we be affected by it. May our steps be determined by it. Bless the minds and hearts of all of those that are here tonight, all of those that listen through the Internet. May we be better off tonight on our way home than we were on our way here. And I ask you to do it. It's your work. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. All the believers said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.